You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. like to make just one observation. The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. I'm not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. And of course, if one does admit to them, then one must neither accept them nor take any personal responsibility for them. One must blame one's parents, sue one's employer, pop a pill or check into a clinic in order to have some dysfunctional emotions soothed and one's self-image restored. Now, one would not expect the world to have much time for the weakness of the psalmist's cries. It is very disturbing. However, when these cries of lamentation disappear from the language and worship of the church, perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of numbers, influence, and spiritual maturity. Perhaps this is more likely. It has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as a little short of embarrassing. Yet the human condition is a poor one, and Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. A diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation, which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party, theologically incorrect in a pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. has an unconscious belief that Christianity is, or at least should be, all about health, wealth, and happiness, silently corrupted the content of our worship? Few Christians in areas where the church has been stronger over recent decades, China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal of Christian experience. Indeed, the biblical portraits of believers give no room to such a notion. Look at Abraham, Joseph, 
David, Jeremiah, and the detailed account of the psalmist's experiences. Much agony, much lamentation, occasional despair, and joy when it manifests itself is very different from the frothy triumphalism that has infected so much of our modern Western Christianity. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. Does our contemporary language of worship reflect the horizon of expectation regarding the believer's experience which the Psalter proposes as normative? If not, why not? Is it because the comfortable values of Western middle-class consumerism have silently infiltrated the church and made us consider such cries irrelevant, embarrassing, and signs of abject failure? I believe it is the exclusion of the experience and expectation of the psalmist from our worship and thus from our horizons of expectation, which has in large part crippled the evangelistic efforts of the church in the West and turned us all into spiritual pixies by excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. By so doing, it has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism and generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphant Christianity confirmed in its impeccable credentials as a club for the complacent. These are the words of Carl Truman in his article titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? How true these words are in so many ways. How common it is to want to go always and every time to a church for a pep rally. You are special. God has a plan, and you're at the center of it. He exists for your comfort, your promotion. And yet too often, reality comes. It's confusing at best and disorienting at worst. Who is this God you speak of, Pastor? How does he relate to the experience by which I have gone through, the pain in which I have lived in for decades, the relationships of which I have tasted and seen are not good but broken? At Grace Church, we do not want to make the tragic mistake of presenting a God that's not in keeping with the Scriptures, all of the Scriptures. We will rejoice when those rejoice, and we will weep with those who weep. We will sing of forgiveness and also acknowledge our doubt. We will preach all the corners of God's Word, not just the high places, the verses that are most triumphant, that tell us what we want to hear, but also tell us the verses that we need to hear. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. 
for those who were with us last Sunday. We take an appropriate break in our two-part series on church discipline because I want to direct our attention to a psalm that's more honest than some of you are used to and more hopeful than some of you perhaps have ever seen. Follow along in your Bibles with me as I read to you Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? And have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. In this psalm, we begin where David begins. In verses 1 and 2, we see these questions of despair. And they come compoundingly fast in cascading fashion. You see those again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's a question of perspective and time. Notice all five times his questions revolve around time. Even the question, will you forget me? He says, will you forget me forever? There's much to learn even in these questions, much not to miss that I want to make sure as your pastor that I point out that you might see what you otherwise might miss. When you are in a season of pain, sometimes even a long season, it feels like an eternity. And the reality is what David is expressing here is that pain feels present while God feels absent. The questions come about time. It is disorienting at best and depressing at worst. And in the psalm, what we're seeing is the perplexity of the reality of pain and the presence, or rather the absence, of God's care. The truth is, youth often does not know of this perspective. Even young children appropriately and lovingly are often shielded by their parents from this reality of the world. 
They minimize difficult conversations. They reduce the word count. They speak of it in a good way. They tell them instead what we can see as good, and that's appropriate and loving as a parent. But you know and I know as time progresses, the older one gets, the more one sees. The longer one lives, the more one's experiences grow. And in those experiences, you start to wake up to the reality what otherwise generations before you have known, and you begin to feel yourself pain and sorrow. Like the youth of vitality and strength that then over time begins to fade with physical decay and pain as doctors confirm maladies that will not go away until one dies. So is the reality of a young person who feels so opportunistic, feels so hopeful of what is yet to come, so much promise yet to be seen, and all that is to be commended, and yet over time the reality comes. It's not a denial of what is hoped for or what is seen, but it's an addition to. To speak honestly with you this morning, Grace Church started in 2019. Fifteen people gathered together, worshiping on Sunday nights at five o'clock. And over time, as God began to add, because of people's conversion, coming to faith in Christ, or others who were already in Christ were like sheep wandering without a shepherd who found a place to call home and found brothers and sisters that way we could live with in community together, God began to bless And without any intention, Grace has by and large been, up until this year, a rather young congregation. All of its energy and all of its late nights. And yet the reality is, come upon so many in this room this week, that others of you in this room have known because of your age and experience and that has tasted the sting of death. In the sense of realizing the difficulty. I spoke with a man yesterday at the hospital who said professionally he has worked as a police officer for 16 years. He has been in and out of hospitals. He's been around death his whole professional career. It is at this point, and has been up to this point, this clinical knowledge, this reality of the world outside. But he said it was not until he stood by the bed of his friend and watched for the first time in his entire lifetime someone that he knows and loves die before his eyes, began to feel the pain of what we read here. That's a true reality for so many who come into the hall of suffering perhaps for the first time or come unto it perhaps in an unexpected time. What we see in these questions is the acknowledgement of humanity. Pain is real. Questions abound. But, but look, if you will, where the psalmist takes those questions. Everybody has questions. 
The matter at hand is to find out to whom are those questions directed? The psalmist teaches us. David models for us. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Here's the truth that I think should be repeated for those who know it in this room and introduced to those of you who do not. God is a big God, able to handle any question you would bring. Some of you feel conflicted to ask God a question might feel to be irreverent and perhaps even blasphemous, and you somehow have to behave, sit in your chair properly, get through life respectfully, do not question God in any way. And yet that's not what happens here. In the reality of God's Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, questions that are being asked, because God has a chest big enough to beat on where these hard questions can be posed. He sees you, He hears you, and He will answer you. But maybe not in a way and at a time that you would expect. That's appropriate for two audiences here this morning. Audience number one are those who have the questions. Audience number two are those who see others ask the questions. In fairness to some of you, you mean well, but you might not do well. You might hear those questions and you might say, oh, oh, don't ask God. Don't ask God. Be respectful to God. He is God. You're not. Just just trust Him. Mind your place. Know your place. Or others are like, oh, oh, a question for God? I have an answer for you. I would like to answer. These types of questions of doubt can be so disorienting that we feel the need to step in and to address that. I have an answer for you. I have a Bible verse for you. I can, I can fast track your suffering. I can take you from pain to promise so quickly. To do so would be to interrupt David. David doesn't have one question. He doesn't have two questions. He has many questions. Friends, when you see those suffering around you, Perhaps what's most important is not what you say, it's what you do. Simply to be present with them in the pain. Say, I hear you. I weep with you. I understand you. And I do not presume to be able to answer every question you ask, for I am not God. But look at what David continues to do. It's not just the questions of despair, it's also the expressions of desire. He continues in this difficult psalm. Verse 3, consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What's happening is you see David move from this great despair to now these expressed desires. He is, as he says in verse 3, he is raising his hand. How often do questions simply express that? God, do you, do you, do you see me over here? 
Could you, could you turn your attention over here? I, I know you sit on the throne. I, I know as the person prayed earlier today is true. Heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool. But did, did you know that I'm here? That this is my geotag reference. This is the season and situation I'm in. And I want to make sure, God, that you see me. Now you respond to me. Because you, God, you know who sees me? My enemies. Oh, they see me. And they mock me. They think I'm a fool for trusting you. In fact, quite honestly, God, I don't understand why my enemies don't suffer while I do. My enemies appear to not struggle while I labor. God, I feel like they're getting the upper hand. It doesn't seem fair. David says, consider an answer. Light up my eyes. It takes discipline to not let pain asphyxiate you. You can see it starting to peek through these verses. The dimmer switch is starting to be raised. Because notice how he transitions in his language. Verse 1, how long, O Lord? Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord. And then he says, my God. This pronoun of possession, this declaration of relationship. God, you belong to me and I belong to you. This much I know. This much I know. Friends, for those of you who are in Christ, let me encourage you this morning to realize the recognition of that. God is your God. It was the Son of God who, in answering the questions of the disciples of his to teach them how to pray, he said to them to address God as Heavenly Father. Our Father in heaven, Jesus says. This is an establishing of the relationship that we as God's people have with God, not only as our creator, not only as our righteous judge, but as our loving, forgiving, heavenly father because of Christ. Christians can often be upbeat. There is a sense in which this makes sense. We, after all, are a people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that the tomb from 2,000 years ago was empty and is still empty. Because of that empty tomb, we find hope. And hope is not the rubbing of a rabbit's foot for good luck, hoping that you will get what you really hoped for. Hope is a concrete foundation like at the bottom of a skyscraper that no matter the storms that press upon it, it will not fall. It will stay through many generations. Yet, while that hope is the, resur and the resurrection is appropriate, it is often forgotten that death precedes life. Before there was an empty grave, there was a crucifixion. Saying it differently, sin has real and painful consequences. 
What is so remarkable about God is that he doesn't create an alternative world where sin doesn't exist and we ride unicorns through flowery fields. No, he sends his son to die so that we would live even after our death. His resurrection was a sign of what's to come. As Paul says in Colossians, he is the the firstborn. Yet, this is not what the world tells us not what our hearts are tempted to believe in the flesh, we imagine, if we're honest, every longing fulfilled. Relationships that we do not have finally secured. Marriages enjoyed. Children blessed. Future secure. Beauty indefinite. And yet this is a lie, and we keep being sold it. For those of you who do not have a relationship with God, who do you cry out to? To whom do you take your pain to? Who answers your questions? Do you stuff it down and try to change the subject? Do you self-medicate with food, drink, or mind-numbing activity? Listen to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We can only drink from the well of materialism, worldliness, and self-centeredness for so long before we get sick. And when we do, it's often not pretty, We will convulse with fear, vomit up anger, and have a headache brought on by disillusionment. We must realize we have fed from the trough that was for pigs, not dined at the table of royalty as adopted children of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is offering. In his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. He is offering forgiveness for your sin, made possible by his death and his resurrection. He is offering peace that flows through your heart in the midst of a tumultuous time. David has questions of despair. He has expressions of desire. But then look what happens in verse 5 and 6. He makes commitments to delight. Verse 5 but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Does this this feel odd to you? Do you feel like maybe we've skipped a few verses? Maybe the psalmist has left out a few verses? Perhaps a minute ago you were distracted and came back into the sermon right now with your attention. You're like, wait, are we in the same psalm? We are right where you left off. Psalm 13. How do we go from tragedy to tranquility? Is this a personality gift that some people have while others of us do not? No. It's because David redirects where he is looking. 
He moves from the pain, which is all he initially feels, to a person in whom he eventually trusts. Look at what it says there. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is not a barter. This is not, God, you owe me. I have trusted, so now you owe me tranquility. I trade you trust for tranquility. It's not what's happening here in the text. What David is doing here in the text is he is moving from his perspective of what he feels that seems so real and present to what ultimately he knows, to what cannot even be seen, but is more real than the circumstance he immediately finds himself in. He looks to God. And in verse 5, he says this, I have trusted, and look at what it says, in your steadfast love, your, in the words of Hebrew here, as David writes in the original text, this hesed love, this is the Lord's unfailing love the loyal love that the Lord has for those who trust in Him. The enemies of God were challenging the faithfulness of God, that He would not love His people. And that's, look what's happening here. Look at the, the transition. Look at verse 4. My foes rejoice. And then verse 5, my heart shall rejoice. So you've got both parties rejoicing but in two different places. They're rejoicing because I am shaken. They're rejoicing in David's calamity. Now, just to give you perspective, if you're not familiar with the biography of David, David was a king ruling over the people of Israel and had a profoundly good and godly reign. It was largely successful in a lot of militaristic ways. And he wasn't just successful as a military ruler. He was successful as a good, godly king. In fact, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. Yet David knew rebellion and rejection constantly. His own son Absalom isn't just a misbehaving child like you and I have known. Absalom creates a coup against his father. It ends with nothing less than an attempt to kill his dad. David has to flee his own house, his own possessions, his own family, run out by his own son. I say this because inevitably you are perhaps tempted to think that your circumstance is unique, distinct, and different than anybody else. And let me be clear to say graciously to you, I do not mean in any way to speak lightly, condescendingly, or patronizing towards the difficulty you have felt, you are feeling, or you will feel. And the complexity of a broken world, there are a variety of ways we experience that in a very palpable ways. It's very personal to us. But friend, I mean to say, graciously as I can, there's a normalization of a struggle that we see in the Scriptures that we otherwise might have missed. David, seemingly so triumphant, seemingly God being so obligated to bless him for his faithfulness, he is after all a man after God's own heart. 
and yet his enemies are rejoicing in his peril. David's perspective and rejoicing is different. He says in verse 5, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. In your salvation. What's interesting here is that David is not saying, okay, sorry, whew, that was a little, you know, brief interruption of otherwise great life. You, you don't actually get the impression from the Psalms that the circumstances have changed. So there's a real sense in which the trial continues. And yet it's David that's changed. If we're honest, any one of us, to be quite clear, you, me, and others seated around you, when we experience a trial, what is our first instinct? God, see this and remove this. And yet James comes along in James chapter 1, and he says something disorienting at best and says, my brothers, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because of what they produce in you. Life is often like an anvil that you are laid upon by providence. The impurities of your life are hammered out that God might create in you something that otherwise would not be seen if you only lived with blessing and comfort. The beauty is in the ironic difficulty of the struggle. And David says, I know that you have unfailing love for me. As I was reading Psalm 13, I could not help but to think of Daniel chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, the story in Daniel chapter 3 is a bunch of Jewish teenagers were essentially taken hostage by this opposing military force and dragged off to captivity and made to work essentially as slaves in the palace, taking the best of their youth but making it work for the occupying enemy forces, Daniel being the prominent person in that text. But there's three other youth that have even given new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not their Hebrew names. And it's learned by Nebuchadnezzar that these youth will not bow down and worship the idol that they've set up as an expression of their devotion to the gods of them, particularly Nebuchadnezzar. And so the, those in the court convinced Nebuchadnezzar to have these youth thrown into the fire. Let's teach everybody else a lesson by what we do to these three people. And they'll learn. Don't mess with us. We're serious. These are enemies on, of God on steroids. And right before they're about to be thrown in the fire, this is what is said in Daniel 3, verse 17 and following. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. Interesting perspective. Able to deliver us, will deliver us. The deliverance perhaps will come in their death, in their hope of eternal life, but the temporal reality of perhaps their deliverance is still to be seen. And then here's what they say next. 
speaking about God's ability to deliver us from the body. He says, but if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their faith was not in the results of what would come by God's providence. Their faith was in the God of providence that no matter what he would bring, they would not worship any other God. Johnny Erickson Tata, a woman who for now over 40 years has lived as a quadriplegic. At 17 years of age, she dove off the end of a dock in a lake, broke her neck, woke up to being, being a quadriplegic. In the last 40 plus years, she's also had several bouts of cancer. And she says the worst part of her life physically that she lives daily with chronic acute pain unrelated to these other events. She writes the following, you could experience a baker's dozen of serious issues layered upon the top of another. Financial pressures, health pressures, relationship pressures, spiritual warfare pressures, the pressure of unthinkable grief or cruel pain. It will not crush you if you believe Christ is in it. All that matters is knowing Jesus and knowing that Jesus is walking in the fiery furnace with you. The pain may feel white hot, but be encouraged. Peace, like a river, as we sung earlier, is able to quench every anxiety and fear. When that happens, you will know really know how to sing, it is well with my soul. She says, you will know how to be in turmoil well, how to be downcast well, how to suffer well, how to be in an unhappy place very well. David in Psalm 13 the experience has not changed, but his perspective has. He says, I will sing to the Lord. He goes from sulking in the valley as his initial point of perspective to shouting on the mountaintop. This is not delusion or denial. This is faith. Worship is pointing. Worship is saying, I see. Do you see? Think even together here this morning as a point of orientation and explanation. For some, seeing is assuring because doubt has otherwise blocked your vision. For some, seeing is exciting because it confirms all your hopes. And yet for others, you cannot see, perhaps for a season, or perhaps have never yet seen. When you come here this morning to a worship service, which is simply an exercise of people pointing, and saying they see do you see? Standing on the Jordan River bank, knowing the promised land is on the other side, and knowing that some have already gone. Worship is saying, I see. Do you see? For those of you who are not Christians, 
when you gather. It is simply an opportunity for you to see people coming to you in fellowship as Andrew did his own brother Simon, John 1, verse 41, saying, we have found the Messiah. People's perspective can often be twisted. If there is a God, does he not care about what is going on? And if he does care, he must be powerless because he's not doing anything about it. Oh, friend, if you think this way, and even Christians at times can think this way, then you either don't know or you are forgetting the whole story. God sees, God cares, and it was him who told Adam, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you do, you shall surely die. Yet Adam and his wife Eve believed they knew better than God. Wanted to be like God. And tried to be God. Choosing not to submit to the word of God, but instead to their own desires. And humanity went from a blank, white, beautiful canvas, unmarked by sin, to a tragic black canvas Everything is touched by sin. And that's the perspective we miss at times. We are expecting to see some white canvas. God, how could this have happened? God is saying, I know exactly how this happened. And then we're tempted to say, God, do you not see? And God is saying, I definitely see. That's why God has mercifully said, through his word in John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life but John goes on to say in verses 17 and following for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. Many of you know, others of you do not, this week has been a week of the tale of two men. Known firsthand or heard of secondhand by those in this congregation. One has passed away. One is about to pass away. Both households filled with shock and grief because it was completely unexpected. No preparation. No final words spoken. No goodbyes, just simply here and then gone. But this is where the paths diverge. 
in the tale of these two men. One man had his faith deeply planted in the soil of Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus was and is the Son of God who lived, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven where he is today at the right hand of God the Father, promising to return again for his people to judge the world according to his righteousness. And the other man, to the best of anyone's knowledge who knew him, did not have that faith, though he himself had heard that same news about Jesus. Their lives will be separated for all of eternity, like the story of the rich man and the poor man in Luke chapter 16. Nothing will change that. Your story today, sitting here in this room, is still being told and is still being written. The question is, what is your story telling others? My hope and prayer is that it may tell of the hope, not despair, found in God. Not because by your personality and temperament you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. No. Because even if your cheeks are stained with tears, you can, through faith alone in Christ alone, by His grace alone, find hope and peace. And I speak to those of you to whom I pastor. Friend, weep with hope. Saw wins. Philippians 2, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. To those of you who do not have that faith, that assurance and that confidence, friend, may I say to you, with all honesty as this week illustrates, tomorrow is never promised. Today, deal with the Lord. Come to Him. Find Him to be loving and forgiving as you repent of your sins. Surrender your life to Him. Find in Him the Savior to whom has forgiven and promises to return. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.